0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 4, Sorrow Comes to All. Imagine a boat on the Ohio River, crossing north from Kentucky to Indiana. It's a late November morning in 1816. A wind whips over the deck, a reminder of the terrible cold of the last year, and envelops a family of four, huddled under a blanket. The stoutly built father tells jokes to distract the others from the icy atmosphere. His coarse black hair bobs as he speaks, and he slaps his thigh every time he comes to a punchline. His tall, rangy wife Tries to keep an eye on their few possessions a skillet, a Dutch oven, clothes, bedding, and a handful of utensils. Her hands, calloused like her husband's, keep her two children close. The older child is a girl nearly ten years old. She looks like her father in her face and her compact build. She watches her younger brother, two years and two days her junior. He too looks like his father but already has his mother's long frame. The wind blows, and Thomas Lincoln shifts to another story. Nancy Lincoln pulls the bedding tighter around Sarah and Abraham. Finally, the boat reaches a landing on the Indiana side of the river. A teamster lends the family a wagon, and they load their few household goods into it. Young Abraham climbs on top of the wagon, just ahead of Sarah, and looks north. He sees an infinity of trees, vines, and darkness. Thomas whips the team forward, down the trail he widened just a few weeks before, and the family rolls into the forest. Above, the denuded branches of the trees reach into the sky like skeletal fingertips. Below, the wheels grind leaves and sticks. The family breathes in what an early settler described as the moldy, woodsy smell of the Indiana wilderness. The cold air gets colder. The sky reddens and silhouettes the stark trees as the wagon gets closer to Little Pigeon Creek. When they pull in, Nancy, Sarah, and Abraham climb off to see their new home. It looks like a wooden tent, a sloping roof mounted on two poles, covered by fallen leaves facing out to a fire pit a neighbor has split some wood for them and thomas tells his children to gather tinder and kindling before the sun sets they get the fire lit just as the horizon darkens as the flames peak the weary family beds down under the half-faced cabin and starts drifting to sleep but sarah and abraham can't they hear animals howling in the darkness the fire struggles to keep away Sarah tries to calm her brother, shivering in the cold. Decades later, the memory of these nights stirred Abraham to poetry: Quote, "When first my father settled here, twas then the frontier line. The panther's scream filled the night with fear, and bears preyed upon the swine. The Lincolns were not the first pioneers in southern Indiana, though it might have seemed that way to Nancy and her children. Albert Beveridge, who wrote a biography of Lincoln in the late 1920s, described the Lincoln's new home like this, Vast, forbidding, tremendous. This mighty forest stretched northward from the Ohio, its trees, like giant sentinels of nature, guarding the wilderness. Sycamore, oak, elm, willow, hackberry, poplar, sugar maple ash, sweet gum, hickory, beech, walnut, growing as thick as their great size would permit. And then Beveridge goes on to say, In 1816, these forests were full of animals. Raccoon, squirrel, opossum, skunk, deer, bear, wolf, wildcat, panther. Wild turkeys ran through the underbrush filled with grouse and quail. Wild ducks and geese flew overhead. Incredible numbers of pigeons hid the sun darkening the air like a thick passing cloud, and, when settling for the night, broke down stout branches of trees. Indiana had long been home to Native Americans, and later French settlers. In the early 19th century, southern whites began drifting in, drawn by the thick black soil radiating north from the Great River. If the land was primeval, it had two advantages. First, Indiana had a proper survey. Thomas Lincoln could stake his claim without worrying about someone fighting him over the boundaries or trying to evict him. Second, when he turned from farming to carpentry in the winter months, there would be no competition with slaveholders stealing bread from their bondsmen's mouths and driving down wages for poor whites like himself. At least, that was a hope. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787 banned slavery from Indiana and its neighbors. But there were loopholes. For example, existing slaveholders were grandfathered in. And many white officials tried to ignore the anti-slavery provision or worked to undermine it. As governor of the territory, future U.S. President William Henry Harrison, one of the 19th century's greatest examples of failing upward, presided over an 1802 convention which asked Congress to suspend the anti-slavery parts of the ordinance for 10 years. Harrison and his allies claimed settlement wasn't moving fast enough, and slavery would help fill up the territory. In 1805, Harrison's allies in the territorial legislature passed a law that made a mockery of the slavery ban. It allowed slaveholders to bring slaves into the territory for 60 days. After that time, African Americans brought to Indiana had a choice. Get sold south, away from your family, or indenture yourself and your loved ones. As you can imagine, these contracts, so-called, give all the advantages to the slaveholder. In one area, the average indenture contract ran 40 years, And there were instances where these indentures ran as long as 90 years, with children obliged to work for decades as well. It was slavery in all but name. Many other settlers realized this and fought Harrison and his allies. People in one county petitioned Congress to move their county to Ohio if Indiana became a slave state. Eventually, the anti slavery forces got the upper hand. Indiana's 1816 Constitution not only banned slavery, but banned any future Constitution from imposing slavery, saying, Holding any part of the human creation in slavery or involuntary servitude can only originate in usurpation and tyranny. Yet, slavery remains. In 1820, four years after the Lincolns crossed the Ohio River, there were nearly 200 slaves in southern Indiana. Now, that was a more diffuse population than we saw in Hardin County, Kentucky, and if Lincoln ever met an African American in southern Indiana, neither he nor those who knew him recorded it. Indiana's Supreme Court made the ban on slavery explicit in an 1820 decision, but as late as 1850 a handful of men and women will remain in bondage in the state. The constitution that outlawed slavery also banned blacks from voting and explicitly forbade them from serving in the militia. As we'll see, these provisions will be precursors to apartheid laws throughout the states carved out of the former Northwest Territory. The Lincolns probably knew little of these debates in the winter of 1816 and 1817 as they focused on survival, mostly through hunting and gathering. A 1907 history of Indiana said this, The pioneers who first came to Indiana could not have remained for any length of time had it not been for the game which was so abundant on every hand. They often, for weeks at a time, had no other food than the bear, deer, and turkey meat they used every sort of substitute for bread, often roasting the white oak acorns and eating them in the place of bread with their meat. They would gather the seeds of the wild rice and wild barley and mix it with the roasted acorn, pounding it up all together, making ash cakes of the meal thus obtained. The forest also provides clothing. As a child, Abraham Lincoln wore buckskins, clothes he did not remember fondly. And shirts made of linen or a coarse cloth called linsey woolsey, a mix of wool and linen. Thomas also began building a rough cabin. It was probably a little bigger than their previous cabins, but like others, it had a dirt floor. There was little iron available, and Thomas would have had to fit the logs together with notches. If you've ever played with Lincoln logs, you have a rough sense of how a cabin was assembled. The gaps between the logs were fitted with smaller pieces of wood and then covered with clay. The furniture consisted of stools or benches built into the walls. The 1907 history says this, For a bedstead, they would drive a fork into the ground far enough from the side and end of the cabin, then put a pole in the floor and into a crack between the logs and another pole the other way from the fork and to a crack in the logs, thus making the end and side rails for the bedstead. After this, they put other poles lengthways as close as they wanted and piled fine brush over this, covering the brush with the skins of animals. For light, the family would have relied on the fireplace or lamps filled with animal grease. Bear grease was said to be a particularly good illuminant. Outside, the family cleared the land for planting as soon as the weather permitted. Oliver Johnson, who grew up in frontier Indiana in the 1820s, remembered that settlers would first cut down smaller trees and underbrush to clear out two or three irregularly shaped acres to raise some quick crops, like corn or flax for clothing. At eight years old, Abraham got introduced to heavy manual labor. As he wrote later, quote, the clearing away of surplus wood was the great task ahead. A, the very young, was large of his age, and had an axe put into his hands at once. And from that till within his 23rd year, he was almost constantly handling that most useful instrument. Abe was also probably planting, which he did in Kentucky, and plowing. Plowing might have been harder than axe work. The steel plow was about 20 years in the future. Historian Andrew Caton says early settlers might have used something called a jumping plow, which was only good for cutting small roots. If the Lincolns were using an iron plow, they likely had to stop repeatedly to clear dirt off the blade. Breaking the soil was also difficult. As Oliver Johnson said, That first year's plowing was enough to ruin the disposition of a preacher. With roots a-poppin' and a-crackin', and flying back on your shins, dragging the heavy old plow around them green stumps, getting fast under a big root, then flying out of the ground. The clearing was a hairy, scratched-over mess when it was done. It looked more like a bunch of hogs had been rooting there. In Indiana, Abraham starts coming into focus as an individual, and he comes across as a little cheeky one of the very few stories of Nancy Lincoln from life came from Dennis Hanks. He said, One day, when Lincoln's mother was weaving in a little shed, Abe came in and quizzically asked his good mother, who was the father of Zebedee's children? She saw the drift and laughed, saying, get out of here, you nasty little pup, you. He saw he had got his mother and ran off laughing. In late 1817, Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow, who raised Nancy when she was a child, faced land difficulties similar to the Lincolns and moved to Little Pigeon Creek, taking over the Lincolns' abandoned half faced camp. Nancy was probably overjoyed to see this couple that had served as her foster parents. With the Sparrows came a gregarious, garrulous 18 year old who we've mentioned many times before. So, let's formally meet this teenager named Dennis Hanks. Like his cousin Nancy, Dennis Hanks was illegitimate, base-born, as he described himself. Dennis was the son of Lucy Hanks' sister, who, confusingly, was also named Nancy. Like Abraham's mother, the Sparrows took Dennis Hanks in and raised him as their own child, getting him a very rudimentary education. Dennis could read and write, but his spelling, as seen in his later letters, was idiosyncratic. Dennis Hanks was a critical source for Abraham Lincoln's early years, and he loved to talk about them. Later in life, Hanks would play up his vague resemblance to Abraham by wearing a stovepipe hat. He's not always considered a reliable source. For example, he had a touching loyalty to Nancy Lincoln and repeatedly denied that she was illegitimate, which almost every Lincoln scholar believes she was. Dennis may have also exaggerated his influence over Abraham. For example, he claimed to have given Abraham his first writing lesson. He said, quote, I taught Abe to write with a buzzard's quillin, which I killed with a rifle, and having made a pen, put Abe's hand in mine, and moving his finger by my hand to give him the idea of how to write we don't know exactly how Abraham learned to write, but with all this in mind, Hanks told stories with such vivid detail that you feel there was always a core fact there. Even if Dennis didn't teach Abraham to write, you could see a teenager holding a child's hand, perhaps reinforcing an earlier lesson. These episodes brought some brief relief to a difficult and draining existence. We often think of the pioneers as leathery people, stoically scything through the wilderness, possessing a toughness that we lost at some point. But it's important to remember, this life ground people down. It involved pushing dirt, hauling logs, threshing and beating what you pull up, and hoping you've grown enough food to last through the next planting. Just getting flax ready for clothing required many different tasks of drying, seed separation, cutting, and beating before it was ready for the technically demanding work of spinning. Nancy Lincoln was said to be an excellent flax spinner. There were any number of ways to injure yourself, and almost no remedies for wounds. A professor of mine once listed all the heavy work one had to do in pre-industrial America, and the ways you could harm yourself. And then she said, now, picture doing all this and doing it without aspirin. Women face extra danger from childbirth and all the complications that can arise from it. There are some herbal remedies and whiskey, but most people pass their lives walking wounded. There's no indication from the records that the Lincolns ever starved in Indiana, but there sometimes was not enough food available, and malnourishment could be a problem on the frontier. This left people vulnerable to disease. Abraham's mother may have been one of them. One of the Lincoln's Indiana neighbors told William Herndon that Nancy either came to Indiana with a chronic illness or developed one after she arrived. Toil, injuries, a less-than-certain food supply and disease meant bodies broke down. People living on or passing through the frontier all said pioneers got old very quickly. Historian Richard Lawrence Miller quotes an Englishman traveling through Illinois at this time who said, quote, people are not so long lived here as in England and they look older sooner. Their lean carcasses, their pale and eager countenances are early in life marked with wrinkles. In late 1817, Thomas Lincoln went back to Kentucky to get the family's farm animals, likely cows and pigs, left at Knob Creek. In Indiana, there wasn't any pasture, so settlers let their livestock graze in the forest. The forage itself may have been reduced by the terrible cold of 1816 the animals started eating a lush white flower called the snake root plant, a plant many settlers from Kentucky had probably never seen. By the summer of 1818, settlers had noticed some livestock stumbling as they walked. Very soon after, people began falling ill. It started with a loss of appetite and then nausea, followed by constipation or vomiting. Miller quotes one doctor who said, A fiery, burning sensation is felt in the region of the stomach, accompanied with a constant desire to puke. The glands are affected, and as the bowels become torpid from the poisonous matter making a lodgment on the stomach and destroying not only the coat of the stomach but affecting all the digestive powers, it is almost next to impossible, in an advanced stage of the disease, to procure passage from the bowels. The poisoning would attack the mucous membranes and would turn the victim's tongue red and their breath foul. Trembling preceded the person losing control of his or her muscles. In the final phase, the victim would lapse into a coma. The torture would end in death, no more than ten days after the first symptoms appeared. It was known by many names. Sick stomach. Puking fever. It's best known as the milk sick, because it came from drinking the milk or eating the meat of a diseased animal. The settlers had a sense the illness was connected to the animals, but they had no idea how the animals got the disease. Some, like Thomas Lincoln, thought it was connected to the water which might be a reason he dug a well at a considerable remove from his Indiana home. The uncertainty added to the terror of the illness, which erupted without warning. The Kentucky legislature at one point offered a reward to anyone who could find a cure for the disease. It was never claimed. In the fall of 1818, Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow probably in their late 40s or early 50s, got sick. The nearest doctor was 30 miles away, a day-long trip in an age of horses, and a physician could offer little help. Nancy Lincoln nursed Thomas and Elizabeth, and we can only imagine her feelings as she watched the agony of these two people who had been a steady presence in her life of upheaval. The Sparrows died within a few days of each other. Thomas Lincoln mounted a green log over a pit and used a whipsaw to cut out the planks for their coffins. Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow were buried on top of a nearby hill. Dennis Hanks moved in with the Lincolns. Other neighbors came down with the milk sick, and Nancy nursed them as well. One was a woman named Nancy Bruner. When Bruner told Nancy she was going to die, Nancy tried to joke with her, saying Nancy Bruner would outlive her. But Nancy Bruner was soon laid in a coffin. Soon, the milk sick came for Nancy Lincoln. As we've said, she may already have been weakened by another disease. William Wood, a neighbor who provided some care for Nancy, said the milk sick, quote, sealed her fate. Thomas, Sarah, Abraham, and Dennis could only watch as Nancy went through the terrible phases of the disease. Before she lost consciousness, Nancy called for her children. Dennis Hanks said, quote, She knew she was going to die and called up the children to her dying side and told them to be good and kind to their father, to one another, and the world, expressing a hope that they might live as they had been taught by her, to love men, reverence, and worship God. Here, in this rude house of the milksick, died one of the very best women in the whole race, known for kindness, tenderness, charity, and love to the world. It was October 5, 1818. Nancy Hanks Lincoln, was 34. Thomas sawed the planks. Dennis smoothed the boards. Abraham, nine years old, whittled the pegs that held his mother's coffin together. Nancy Lincoln was placed on a sled and pulled up the hill where Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow were buried. She was lowered into a hollow between them. As the dirt fell on Nancy's grave, Peter Bruner, Nancy Bruner's widower, extended his hand to Thomas and said, we are brothers now, meaning, as his son Henry later remembered, that they were brothers in the same kind of sorrow. Nancy Lincoln knew woe. She was rejected by her father, neglected through her childhood, and trailed by whispers throughout her life. Nancy was a kind and, by all accounts, intelligent woman who, like other intelligent women of the time, was denied the opportunity to develop her mind. It seems particularly cruel to Nancy and to history that she never had the chance to learn to write and leave some remains of her intellect behind. As a result, we have to view Nancy Hanks Lincoln through the lens of her son. It's the only way to capture that blurry image in the black firmament of time. But Nancy was more than her son. And I have to ask, what did she think of herself in that final autumn of her life? Was she content with a husband who loved her, and the faith all who knew her said she cherished? Did she find some way to engage that powerful mind of hers, or did it beat helplessly against the four wooden walls of her home? We'll never know. Millions of women like Nancy Hanks Lincoln marched silently through this pioneer life, their minds an afterthought to society, sinking into their graves, leaving only physical remains. They may have been content. They might have been more. In his 1860 autobiographical statement, Abraham Lincoln wrote quote, In the autumn of 1818, his mother died. This was the extent of Lincoln's direct comment on this painful period in his life, and there has been endless speculation about what Nancy's death did to his psyche. It's likely there were many different effects. He may have felt abandoned by his mother. Some historians suggest losing Nancy made him more sensitive to suffering. There are stories about how Abraham would furiously scold boys in his neighborhood for engaging in some of the barbarous animal torture that passed for play. Charles Strozier, a psychotherapist, suggests Lincoln felt guilt over his mother's passing. In the 1860 statement, Lincoln prefaced his mother's death with the following, a few days before the completion of his eighth year, in the absence of his father, a flock of wild turkeys approached the new log cabin, and A, with a rifle gun standing inside, shot through a crack and killed one of them. He has never since pulled a trigger on any larger game. Strozier sees the key detail as Lincoln's lack of pride and sense of responsibility over the turkey's death. Strozier writes, The guilt, one suspects, has been displaced from his mother onto the wild bird. Thus, it seems he felt somehow responsible for his mother's death. Strozier goes on to suggest this reflected an unconscious competition with his father for his mother's love, which, in the young Abraham's mind, he won, but at a terrible cost. As Strozier writes, quote, as punishment for his love, she died. Thomas Lincoln fell apart after his wife's death. He moped in the cabin, according to Dennis Hanks, and took long hunting treks, which sound like the depressive episodes Thomas suffered in Kentucky. Historian Michael Burlingame says that Thomas Lincoln took a lengthy trip to try and sell pork sometime after his wife's death. Finding no comfort of his own, Thomas could give none to his children, which could only have contributed to Abraham's sense of abandonment. And as she struggled with her own grief, Sarah Lincoln, not yet 12 years old, had Nancy's responsibilities crash on her shoulders. Dennis Hanks remembered that he and Abraham tried to get a turtle and a baby raccoon to help comfort Sarah, who, quote, would get so lonesome, missing her mother, she'd set by the fire and cry. Amid this desolate emotional landscape, the family had to survive, and lived for an exceptionally bleak year off hunting. By the fall of 1819, Thomas had recovered enough to take a trip to Kentucky, leaving Dennis, Sarah, and Abraham in the care of a relative. That November, he arrived in Elizabethtown and knocked on the door of a log cabin where a 30-year-old widow lived with her three children. Thomas had known her more than a decade before. Her name was Sarah Bush Johnston. When people spoke of Sarah Johnston, they spoke of pride. It was the word used by her granddaughter, Harriet Chapman. Dennis Hanks, Harriet's father, said Sarah had something of the high life, his words in Kentucky. But this wasn't haughtiness or arrogance, it was dignity. Samuel Haycraft, who knew Thomas Lincoln, said of Sarah, quote, I know she was a good woman, and when a girl, her mother thought she was too proud, simply because the poor girl tried to make herself look decent and keep in the fashion of that early day. Sarah had presence. She was tall, with straight posture, a handsome face, and a fair complexion linked to an outgoing personality. Her granddaughter said Sarah curled her hair until it went gray. But her large, blue-gray eyes were her most striking feature. There's a photo taken of Sarah in her later years, and even in old age, even in black and white, those eyes penetrate the viewer. She was born Sarah Bush in 1788, the fifth of nine children of a prosperous family. Thomas Lincoln knew the Bushes. Sarah's brother Isaac sold Sinking Spring Farm to Thomas, and Thomas may have courted Sarah for a time before, at age 17, she married Daniel Johnston. Thomas attended the wedding and gave them a present. Sarah and Daniel had three children together, but Daniel Johnston repeatedly fell into debt that his brothers had to pay off. The Bushes or Johnstons eventually used political connections to get Daniel a job as the local jailer. The family moved into the jail, and Sarah did all the cooking and cleaning there. In 1816, Daniel died in a local epidemic, likely the flu. Sarah managed to survive, either through her own work or from financial support from the Bush and Johnston families. Standing on Sarah's doorstep, Thomas got to the point. He wanted to marry her. It says something about Thomas Lincoln's charm that Sarah didn't just slam the door in his face. But she didn't quite say yes. She said she had no objection, but, Sarah added, she had some debts that needed to be settled before any marriage could take place. Thomas happily took the list from Sarah and went to her creditors. They weren't large debts, standing no more than three dollars, and Haycraft said that Thomas settled her accounts that evening. Next morning, Haycraft said, I issued the license, and they were married in 60 yards of my house and left right off. So Thomas Lincoln left Kentucky a second time, with Sarah, her three children, Elizabeth, John, and Matilda, and all their worldly goods in tow. Entering southern Indiana, Sarah later recalled the country was, quote, wild and desolate. When the five of them arrived at Little Pigeon Creek, she said she found the cabin, quote, tolerably well. The children were another matter. Filthy, neglected, and down to one set of clothes each, Dennis Hanks said Sarah and Abraham looked, quote, wild, ragged, and dirty. So the first thing Sarah Bush Lincoln did in Indiana was bathe Sarah and Abraham. Dennis Hanks said, quote, She soaked, rubbed, and washed the children clean so that they looked pretty neat, well and clean. She sewed and mended their clothes, and the children once more looked human, as their own good mother left them. In the wagon, Sarah and Abraham saw an expensive bureau, tables and chairs, plates and forks, clothes and bedding. Thomas wanted Sarah to sell the bureau for cash. She said no. Pride. Pride. But she shared everything she brought from Kentucky with Sarah, Dennis, and Abraham, including what was likely the first white shirt Abraham Lincoln ever wore. She said later she wanted, quote, to make them look more human. And then Sarah put her new husband to work. Thomas laid down a wooden floor in the cabin, maybe the first Sarah and Abraham had ever stepped on, and installed a door and proper windows. In a few days, maybe a few hours, Sarah Bush Lincoln brought order and self-esteem to a home that lacked both. Thomas Lincoln's greatest act for his children was bringing Sarah Bush Lincoln into their lives. The Lincolns had been through a heartrending hell of loss and neglect. This ramrod straight woman gave them some of her pride and all of her love. In addition, Sarah understood Abraham in a way his father couldn't. She sensed her stepson's ambitions, perhaps because of her own aspirations. Abraham, in turn, became fiercely attached to this sharp and well-organized person, and for the rest of his life called Sarah Bush Lincoln, mother. As one of Lincoln's relatives later said, quote, No man could love a mother more than he loved her. In 1862, Lincoln wrote a letter to Fanny McCullough, the daughter of an Illinois colleague who had been killed in the Civil War. Lincoln wrote, quote, In this sad world of ours, sorrow comes to all. And to the young, it comes with bitterest agony, because it takes them unawares. The older have learned to ever expect it. I am anxious to afford some alleviation of your present distress. Perfect relief is not possible, except with time. You cannot now realize that you will ever feel better. Is this not so? And yet, it is a mistake. You are sure to be happy again. To know this, which is certainly true, will make you feel some less miserable now. I have had experience enough to know what I say. next time, we'll talk more about this newly blended family in the woods and the community where they found themselves. We'll also look at how Abraham's fraying relationship with his father would make him seek a way beyond it.